You are listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 7th of January 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monaco's House View, coming up today. The British government was slow to respond. It's partly because they were caught on the hop. Not only was the Prime Minister sunning himself in Moustique with his girlfriend, but they were given no prior warning by the Americans of this drone strike which took out Soleimani. My guests Carol Walker and Tim Marshall are here to discuss the fallout from the crisis with Iran and how America's allies are responding to being left in the dark. Plus, we look at Facebook's move to ban so-called deep fakes and ask whether it will have an impact in the spread of misinformation. And how connected do we feel to major natural disasters abroad? And what gets us to actually open up our wallets to try to help? We'll also get the latest opinion from Monocle's editorial floor. As in Finland, it's not only Austria's leader who has youth on his side. The whole cabinet in Vienna is getting a generational makeover, not to mention the government filling half of all positions with women. The country's new justice minister is a 35-year-old former Bosnian refugee. The minister for Europe is also 35, and the new finance minister is 38. I am Marcos Hippi. Monaco's House View starts now. Welcome to the programme. I'm joined on today's news panel by Carol Walker, political analyst and former BBC correspondent, and Tim Marshall, author and editor of the what and the why.com. Welcome both to the show. We'll begin here in the UK, where Prime Minister Boris Johnson has been criticised by some for his slow response to the crisis with Iran and the wider Middle East. Johnson was on holiday in the Caribbean when Qasem Soleimani was killed by a US attack in Baghdad only returning to work yesterday. Some have said he risks putting the UK at odds with the US and with Iran as well. Carol, what did you make of the response from Downing Street and indeed the fact that Boris Johnson didn't cancel his holiday? Well, I think there's absolutely no doubt that the British government was slow to respond. It's partly because they were caught on the hop. Not only was the Prime Minister sunning himself in Moustique with his girlfriend, but they were given no prior warning by the Americans of this drone strike which took out Soleimani. But I think it's also because the UK government now faces a real dilemma. Do they side with the Europeans or the Americans over this? There's no doubt that the UK is very concerned about the action that was taken against Soleimani, the potential repercussions of that, the possibility, which now seems very high, of further reprisals, further tit-for-tat, instability in the Middle East, the possibility that uh, coalition forces may have to pull out of Iraq altogether with the long-term repercussions of that. And, of course, there are the considerations about future relations. We know that Boris Johnson wants to form a strong bond with Donald Trump. He wants to get a US trade deal, um, but he doesn't want to burn his bridges with the Europeans. And until now, at least, the UK has sided with the Europeans when it comes, for example, to the Iran nuclear deal, um, supposedly to curb Iran's nuclear ambitions in return for the easing of sanctions. Uh, The UK has stayed with the Europeans in supporting that deal, even though it is now effectively in tatters since the US pulled 
out of the deal long before the current crisis. Team, what do you reckon? How much frustration is there within Boris Johnson's team over the fact that the UK wasn't warned beforehand of this assault? There's a lot of frustration, but I think there's also on this particular instance a... uh, a knowledge that this one was so uh, sensitive that in this one time out of a hundred they didn't they didn't get told but they are smarting about that because there are 400 british troops there there are a thousand british contractors and other workers there who are immediately in danger also they after 3 days and it was late put the three british ships that are in the area uh, instead of being what's called on the horizon, so that if a British-flagged ship in the Strait of Hormuz gets into difficulty with the Iranians, they're on the horizon and can go to its assistance, possibly too late, they're now actually escorting them. And they would have liked a heads-up that they could have put these things into place beforehand. On the, on the late response, yes, it was. Uh, it doesn't look good. But there's two things. One, most of us won't remember this in a few weeks' time. Uh, there'll be a little bit of residual. But the background to it is, is is the Johnson administration is exhausted after the general election campaign, which only ended on December 12th. They are also aware that they've got a hell of a year coming up um, with Brexit and many other things. And also the people driving uh, Mr Johnson, like Dominic Cummings, are determined to put an end to the nine-to-five, five-day-week culture at Downing Street, which you might be surprised. You know, you'd think, hang on, major major power, Britain five-day culture, but there has been an element of that civil service view and they are determined to turn it into a 24-hour operation. So they thought, we need a proper break. It doesn't really excuse not coming back on a world crisis. Carol, earlier you were explaining how this is a difficult balancing act for Johnson, who will kind of try to have to balance between Brussels and Washington. Do you think Johnson will have to take sides on this eventually when it comes to how to deal with Iran? I think they're trying very hard to tread this rather precarious, narrow path for as long as possible by calling for a de-escalation of the tensions in the region by urging everyone to cool down. I think uh, they did make their views clear when Donald Trump suggested that he might actually strike at cultural sites across Iran, which is not only uh, illegal under under international conventions, but would undoubtedly further harden anti-Western views in the region. And I think that they are trying to uh, not come out with full-blooded either opposition or support for the Americans in order to try to keep all options open. Now, whether they will be able to continue doing this, I think, depends very much on what happens in the coming days and weeks. Um, It looks as though the Iranians are going to wait and retaliate in a way and at a timing of their own choice rather than some immediate swift onslaught. Uh, And it looks as if Donald Trump is unwilling to try to to actually be dragged into some full-throated war. Uh, Indeed, there were these rumours overnight that the Americans were going to pull their forces out of Iraq. That, of course, would inevitably have meant that, that the British would have to pull their forces out of Iraq as well. So I think they're going to try 
to tread this delicate path between the two courses. Um, how long they will be able to continue that is, it does depend on the events of the next few days. And it's interesting that the Europeans are finally getting their action together. It was interesting that Boris Johnson has already put out a joint, if very guarded, statement, along with Angela Merkel of Germany and uh, President Macron of France. Uh, and we're waiting to hear just this afternoon from the Defence Secretary as to the more specific action which the UK government is going to take. Exactly, Tim. Uh, how far do you think think Boris Johnson and his team are willing to go when it comes to potentially publicly criticising Washington and its actions? Almost as far as they've already gone, which is very muted, guarded criticism. I mean, Carol drew attention to the statement about the 52 sites, targets, some of which may be cultural. Even, and I think it was only Dominic Raab said this, you know, it wasn't Boris Johnson, it was down a level at foreign minister level said uh, pretty much, <coughs> well, we uh, really don't sort of uh, approve of that sort of thing. Um, that Even that is difficult I, f- for a British administration. So they've gone that far. I think there would have to be uh, something like an attack on a cultural site. And, and at that point, I don't think the British government would have much choice. They would have to condemn it. The British public would absolutely insist on it. But everything Carol said I agree with, it depends on what happens now. They're riding two horses. What they will not do, I'm confident, is seriously enter a shooting match with Iran uh, if the Americans ask them to. And it's interesting that already the opposition, of course, which is still in disarray after that general election, but Emily Thornberry, who is still the shadow foreign secretary at the moment, was saying very strongly that Boris Johnson should be making it clear that we're not going to be dragged into another illegal war, questioning why this hasn't been raised at the UN Security Council. And and I think that this reflects a, a wider concern that the wider international community has been somewhat caught off guard by this and is deciding which direction to take, given that just about nobody wants to see this result in a wider, deeper, out-and-out conflict between the US and Iran. It was very striking. For the first 36 hours after it happened... It was almost silence from the chancellors of Europe. They Mm. were all stunned, as just about everybody was, and they were all thinking, what do we say? And when you think that, you're best to say nothing, which is pretty much what they did. Uh, Now the lines are are being formed, and, and the Europeans are very clear. The British are trying to ride the two horses. Let's see what happens. Well, Boris Johnson and and former prime ministers of the UK have been going on about the special relationship between the US and the UK. How should the British public feel about that now, considering that the UK was no, not warned about killing of Soleimani? And also, what does the UK public feel about how close the relationship between Boris Johnson and Donald Trump should be? Well, look, Donald Trump is not exactly um, top of the popularity stakes uh, in the UK, but I think people do value that relationship with the United States. I think, as Tim has said, in this specific case, there is an understanding in government and intelligence circles that this was an opportunity to take out a very dangerous, very powerful figure in the Iranian regime. And there is a level of understanding that they weren't tipped off in advance. Um, but clearly there are now wider repercussions for that uh, for that whole region. And I think that the UK will be pressing to get a much clearer idea of what 
the American strategy is from here on. Of course, there's a lot of concern that there doesn't really seem to be a wider strategy. And Donald Trump seems to have been giving out conflicting signals about what the United States is going to do next beyond wanting to continue to sound like the strong man in this international crisis. So I think, yes, it will remain really important for the UK to retain that special relationship. They do want to have, uh, they don't want to do anything to upset Donald Trump. They know how much things depend on his personal views in all of this. Um, and they will continue to tread that tightrope. We also want a trade deal. Absolutely. And that's very high on Boris Johnson's wish list in this coming difficult year. Carol Walker and Tim Marshall there. We'll be back in just a moment. But first, here is Monaco's Daniel Bates with some of the other stories we have been following today. Thank you, Marcus. Huge numbers of mourners have attended the burial of the Iranian general Qasem Soleimani in his hometown of Kerman. Iranian media is reporting that 50 people have been killed in a stampede as Iranians flock to the burial site. The country's top military commander was assassinated in a U.S. drone strike on Friday on the orders of President Donald Trump. Leaders in Iran have vowed to avenge his death. France's Prime Minister Edouard Philippe has said that he is open to discussing changes to the average retirement age with the country's trade unions. The issue has been one of the main sticking points over the government's pension reform plan and has triggered widespread protests. And today's Monocle Minute reports that commuters in Louisville, Kentucky, enjoyed an easier trip to work yesterday, thanks in part to the launch of the city's first bus rapid transit line. The $35 million scheme is operated by Louisville's Transit Authority of River City. And for more on this, you can head over to monocle.com minute and subscribe to our Daily Digest. Those are some of the headlines we're following. Now back to you, Marcus. Thanks, Danielle. This is Monaco's House View. I am Marcus Hippi, here with Tim Marshall and Carol Walker. We turn our attention now to Facebook. The social media giant has announced it will be banning so-called deep fakes, videos and images created by a computer program to make something look real, even when it is not. This is, of course, hugely problematic in the spread of disinformation online. Tim, what do you think of the timing of this, in a sense, before things really heat up ahead of the 2020 US presidential election? Well, they're a couple of years behind the curve. Uh, I mean, obviously, they, they're the experts in AI and this sort of thing. But I mean, I've been banging on about deep fakes for several years now uh, in, in the city and, and in military circles saying, you know, you've got to prepare yourself for this because there's going to come a time when an American general is going to be seen to be desecrating a Koran in Afghanistan or whatever, and it's going to spark, you know, widespread death. But he never actually did it because you can't tell. Um, so, so it's it's absolutely it's here. It's now. You know, there are examples on the internet. You can see they are very impressive. Facebook. Uh, so, a couple of years too late. Facebook have not said how many people they're going to pay large sums of money to find these things. So, mm -hmm. I suspect it's going to be retroactive. In which case, the damage will already have been done. A lie has gone halfway around the world before the truth has its boots on. And uh, also, so they're not going to pay that many people. And as I said, because it's retroactive, I'm not sure how much uh, change it will have. But at least it's bringing it to public awareness that these things exist. Carol, are you any more optimistic? Well, look, I think it is fantastically difficult. The internet is absolutely awash with various fake videos and they range from just the very amusing memes that everyone enjoys and are clearly a laugh and everyone can tell a fake 
And then there's a, a grey area where there is something that may be a bit of political mischief, mm. could be pretty damaging to the person who is subjected to it. Um, but is that actually a deep fake? Is that something that Facebook would consider to have crossed the line? And it's interesting, for example, in the last general election, the Conservatives got a great deal of flack when they doctored a video to make it look as though Keir Starmer, who was the Labour opposition spokesman on Brexit, made it appear as though he had no answer to a question about Brexit. He had hesitated somewhat the way it was doctored. It made it look as though he was thrown into a complete dilemma. Now, Facebook decided that that was perfectly acceptable. Yeah. Sorry, we're back, we're back into this thing about are you a publisher or not? And mm -hmm. they're saying we're not publishers. So the BBC would never put on a, a, a Nancy Pelosi slurring her speech, which was put out on Facebook simply, but they slowed, slowed it down. And fa But that's not going to fall foul of Facebook's rules because it's only if it's done with AI. So they will still allow that nonsense to be, and I think Facebook is a publisher. Last thing, there are things like blockchain technology where you can stamp a video and so you can always know the very very first copy of it so you can prove that was faked in location x but i go back to the point well that's no good once the rioting started because you're doing it several days later and just to point out there was another example again in the last election was when some bbc footage was used as part of the election campaign and now the bbc kicked up a massive fuss and eventually the party took it down but I think it does, again, prove how many thousands of people had already seen that yeah. um, by the time that it was taken down. It is a huge problem. I think it is welcome that Facebook have taken this step to take down some of the more extreme examples. But the fact that Facebook have decided that if something is put out by a politician, it's newsworthy, mm -hmm. so they're not going to take it down... I think that leaves an absolutely giant loophole to be exploited. And as Tim has pointed out, it could be potentially seriously dangerous for uh, not just in terms of political events, but in terms of the, the repercussions. And these things do spread very quickly. Tim, what kind of further action would you like to see? I'd like to see Facebook put the money where their mouth is and employ hundreds of people to actively search out things. Media organisations, you know, correct errors extremely quickly and, and are just mortified when they make them. Facebook does not really care, nor do the other uh, internet giants. And, and I don't like particularly... Well, I do like censorship, actually. We all do, because we don't want people openly being allowed to, say, kill person X. So it's where you draw your line. I think the state, I think the laws have to catch up with the technology and I'm afraid it has to be regulated. It's an unpopular opinion because, we, oh, we don't like censorship, we don't like laws coming into the media. They are getting away with horrible things that they publish. And in related news, there's been concern, for example, about China's use of social media and faked images now ahead of Taiwan's election this coming weekend. Carol, when you look at how states and governments are it seems, spreading misinformation. How bad do you think the situation can get in the future? Oh, it's potentially an enormous risk. And as Tim has said, I think that many governments and big corporations have yet to wake up to the scale of this. Um, we have seen cyber attacks. We have seen how dangerous they can be, how quickly they can disrupt economies. Um, if you look at what China is doing, controlling the access of its own population to the internet uh, 
and at the same time, as you say, uh, using it to try to uh, shape Taiwan's election. Um, it is a huge problem. We were talking earlier about the potential repercussions of the US-Iran standoff. That is one of the areas which could easily be exploited. We know how vulnerable Western economies and Western governments and Western crucial public services are to cyber attack. And this is something where the experts, the disruptors are way ahead of the official channels and the uh, the authorities in it, right across the globe, and it's and it is a, potentially a very big problem. The key to it all, to me, is that they are publishers, and once the law and the governments and the companies accept that they are the ones publishing uh, homophobia, hate crime, this, that, and the other, then people will get. We can't allow them to publish this. So uh, people, up, people can upload. They're the ones providing the platform and publishing it, and that's the key. Carol Walker and Tim Marshall, thank you very much. In a moment, our affairs editor Christopher Chermak looks at why world leaders are getting younger. You are listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I am Marcos Hippi. Finally today, Monocle's affairs editor Christopher Chemek looks at why so many of the world's governments seem to be undergoing a generational shift. Finnish Prime Minister Sanna Marin became the world's youngest serving state leader last month when she was sworn in at age 34. But she hasn't kept the title for long. Today the mantle will be passed to Austria's Sebastian Kurz. And despite being just 33 years old, this isn't Kurz's first stint as chancellor. He's been re-elected after the collapse of his last government in May. As in Finland, it's not only Austria's leader who has youth on his side. The whole cabinet in Vienna is getting a generational makeover, not to mention the government filling half of all positions with women. The country's new justice minister is a 35-year-old former Bosnian refugee. The minister for Europe is also 35, and the new finance minister is 38. Much of the focus of these new governments has been on gender, in the case of Finland, or party coalitions in the case of Austria, where Kurz's conservatives engineered a swing from a partnership with the far right to an accord with the Greens. But age shouldn't be ignored either. As a 30-something myself, one who, like many of my generation, occasionally wonders whether my elders have spent my entire pension and soured the planet, I suppose I should be pleased that I'm now well represented in government. But it also leaves me with an odd feeling. If I'm not leading a country in my 30s, what have I done with my life? More seriously, I do wonder whether I'd really be ready to have that level of responsibility thrust upon me now. Is anyone ready at my age? Sure, our politics need refreshing, but is a youthful leader really going to deliver change in a more responsible way? Time will tell whether the young are really capable of responsible government. Finland and Austria are the testing grounds. And there might be one person watching this experiment more keenly than most. Pete Buttigieg, at 37, the U.S. presidential hopeful, is practically a veteran. That was Monocle's Chris Chermak, and that's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Daniel Bage and researched by Tia Thomas-Alexander. Our studio manager was Steph Chunger. Coming up at 2000 London time, a brand new edition of Monocle on Design with host Josh Fennert. This week we have a look ahead to trends and big projects coming up in 2020, including a conversation with renowned architect Sir Peter Cook. Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow. 
tomorrow, that is at 1800 London time. I am Marcus Hippie, thanks for listening and goodbye.